This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Hello, I'm Carmen Pate, and I'm your host for today's podcast. You know, the Apostle Paul asserts very clearly in his writings that our justification before God is not by works, but only and always by faith alone in Christ alone. And eternal life is a gift given freely to a person, not based on persevering in good works. So then how are we to understand what appears to be a contradiction by Paul in Romans 2? In one example, he writes, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Well, who was Paul speaking to? What is the context of these passages? And how are we to reconcile the apparent contradiction in Paul's writings? Well, our guest today is going to help us sort through these important questions. Dr. Fred Shea has pastored churches in Arizona, California, Texas, and served as the Western Director of the Christian Medical Association. He was a professor of theological studies at Phoenix Seminary and was the director of their doctorate ministry program for over 20 years. Dr. Shea is the founder and president of Graceline, a ministry devoted to motivating Christians toward maturity in their faith. He is currently Dean of Doctoral Studies and Professor of Theological Studies right here at Grace School of Theology. He also serves as Managing Editor of Grace Theology Press. Dr. Shea is the author of The Faith That Saves, The Nature of Faith in the New Testament, The Glorious Grace of God, Medical Ethics, and Suffering Successfully. He was also the editor and contributor to the new release, Defense of Free Grace Theology. Dr. Shea, it's good to have you with us. Carmen, it's a delight to be here. Well, so grateful. You know, one thing we learn early on here at Grace is that context is key. When it comes to interpreting scripture, we have to know where, what was uh, the setting, who the audience was, all of those things are so important. So let's start, if you would, setting the stage, if you will, for the purpose of Romans and the audience that Paul was speaking to. Well, as you probably know, Paul wrote Romans, uh, which is one of his most um, intense theological books. He's writing it about 57 AD. He's in Corinth, and he's writing to prepare the people of Rome for a visit. Chapter 15 talks to us about the fact that he wants to come see them on his way to Spain. And so he says, I'm going to kind of plow the field and prepare them. So he writes this very important book that covers basically two topics. One, he deals with the issue of doctrine of the believer, and then he deals with the issue of the duty of the believer, or the doctrine and the deportment. Very practical. This is kind of Paul's uh, way of dealing with uh, topics like in the book of Ephesians and Colossians, he does the same thing, also some in Philippians. So he's writing to try to help prepare this group of people with a major theological treatise. And one of the key points he makes is this idea of justification by faith. But then, as you said, he then seems to mention in chapter 2 that 
we're justified by works and we know that doesn't fit. So right. what in the world does, have, does Paul have in mind? And perhaps a key passage would be found in Romans 1, verse 18, where Paul talks about the wrath of God, mm -hmm. the orge, the wrath of God. Two mm -hmm. words, orge and thumos, mm -hmm. but Paul is using orge here for wrath. And so the question is, what is wrath? Many people would say, well, orge always means hell. And others would say, orge probably never means hell, yes. but it means temporary tribulation and difficulty. So the question becomes, what does Paul have in mind in Romans? Well, Paul is writing to tell us how we can escape the wrath of God, whether it be a future eternal hellishness right. or whether it be escaping the wrath of God that is visited upon all people who are involved in any sin. Because in yes. 118, it's in the present tense. So the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness yes. of men who suppress the truth. And so it's going to be important for us to understand when he's talking about eternal wrath or if he's talking about present wrath, because certainly that makes a difference in in uh, what we believe about soteriology or what we believe about our daily walk with Christ. So. Very Absolutely. critical. Well, you know, when we come to chapter two, there seems to be a stinging rebuke of Paul's audience, uh, charging them with judging others while they themselves are guilty of the same sins. Explain this diatribe that really does outline the reality of God's judgment, because there are some who would go, well, if God is a God of love, then, you know, he's not really going to be concerned about the, the bad things that we do. You know, this is a very interesting passage, and what you find is that many commentators and theologians don't really comment on this very much. They somehow find a, a way of kind of not commenting because mm -hmm. it's so difficult. The last 10 or 15 years, we've seen more people from the reform camp and some from a dispensational camp starting mm -hmm. to comment on this. Uh, what's interesting is we would call this a problem passage. Yeah. Some passages are pretty easy. Some are very difficult. This is one of the difficult ones. And when we come to a problem passage, we need to understand that everybody comes with a bias. Mm. Sometimes we're biased because, well, I heard a sermon and that's what it said it meant, so that's what it meant. Mm -hmm. Or I read a book and that's what he said it meant, so that's what it meant. Or it needs to mean this because that's what my theology says it needs to mean. And mm -hmm. so there's a prejudice, a bias that's at work, and we need to be able to analyze all of the options, the different potential options, the different possible options, and maybe get down to what's the most preferred option. Mm -hmm. And that means we have to look at the evidence. Yes. And many times people fail to look at the evidence. They just boldly pontificate, well, it means this and that's the way mm -hmm. it is, mm -hmm. instead of saying, well, wait a minute, it could mean this, but here's a rival interpretation. Yes. And here's the evidence for each view and at the end of the day, based on the evidence, I believe, I believe it means this. Mm -hmm. and, and that helps provide a little bit of humility when you realize, yes. hey, there's two or three options here. Mine is one option. I think it's the right option, but mm -hmm. I have to be honest with it. Yes. Now, when Paul comes in chapter two, as you mentioned, he's writing a diatribe. This is a literary formula. 
where oftentimes you will come up with an imaginary objector, somebody who, okay, I want to make a point uh, and I need a foil. I'm going to speak against this person. I'm making him up. I'm going to speak against his argument and make my case. What Paul is doing here is he's kind of like a trial lawyer. He's like a prosecuting attorney and he comes into the court and he says, listen, you got to get people lost before you get them saved. So Paul in chapters one and two, he's helping get people lost. And so he says to the religious moralist, you're guilty. And he says to the righteous Jew, you're guilty. And he says to this guy, you're guilty. You're all guilty. So Paul is using a way of saying, listen, let me make sure I get everybody lost <laughs> right. before I get them saved in chapters three and, and four. And we're all included. And we're all included. And so mm -hmm. Paul is mm -hmm. saying, listen, God's judgment is certain. It mm -hmm. may take a while to come. Yes. And you may think you've skirted away from it, but you have not. Mm. So he's using this literary diatribe formula to kind of make his case yes. as a trial attorney. Yes, yes. And, you know, we often talk about the long suffering of God. And I am so grateful as a, as a believer for the long suffering of God and his patience with me. And, and uh, uh, he, But he does truly want all to come to a saving knowledge uh, of him. But as you said, God's wrath is certain. It, def there, it, it is going to be. And we sort of alluded as we began uh, to the fact that it can happen here or now. But is there, a, is there an expectation of, well, this is when he's, you know, this is when he's given up on Carmen Pate. This is, this is that moment. Do we, do we know? Or how do we, how do we know? Um, we know for certain God's wrath is sure, but do we know when? Well, God never gives up on his children. So we do believe in eternal security. Mm -hmm. We may not believe in the what some would call the perseverance of the saints, saying that every yeah. saint will always persevere to the end, because I know some who didn't. Uh, we know some who didn't. But God will preserve me to the end. Now, that's a different story. That's eternal security. However, as a Christian, although I've escaped hell, eternal, the eternal destiny of the lost, um, sometimes I don't live right. And sometimes I don't live right for a long time. And sometimes God as a loving father moves in with sometimes we call it discipline. Sometimes yes. we call it correction. Some would call it wrath. Why? Because God is against all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Mm -hmm. So any sin is hideous to God. And, yes. and so he will do what he needs to do to work with his people, even Christians, mm -hmm. to deal with them. Now, there also is a future day of wrath, and that's called the Great Tribulation. And we know that that day is coming based on passages like Revelation 4 through 19 that talk about mm -hmm. this tribulation. Mm -hmm. Daniel 9 talks about this, the 70th week of Daniel, the Great Tribulation. Yes. What's interesting is Paul himself in 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 verses 9 and 10 says that we, referring to the Thessalonian church, mm -hmm. we are not destined for wrath, orge. And then he ends his book in 5, 9 and 10 and says, we are not destined for wrath. And right in the middle, chapter 2, verse 16, he says, these Jews are destined for wrath mm -hmm. because of what they're doing. If the word wrath in, in 1 Thessalonians means the tribulation or the great tribulation, that's a future day. Yes. And Paul is actually saying that we, the church, are not destined for it, which, be, which would be one way of advocating for the view of pre-tribulational 
rapture. rapture. So wrath can be something we experience now because yes. God is angry at sin, whether mm -hmm. it's a Christian or a Buddhist or an Islamicist or whoever, God is angry at sin. Yes, yes. Very good, very good. We well, yeah, Romans 2 verse 6 tells us that God will render to every man according to his deeds. You have said that the judgment of works is true for Christians and for non-Christians, but it's very important that we keep the nature of those two judgments separate and understand the difference uh, context. Please explain to us. You know, there are a variety of judgments that are found in the Bible. The two that I think are most important for what we're talking about is one is called the great white throne. That's found in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 and following. And that is a day, a future day, when God will bring to himself all of the people who are, we would call non-believers. Yes. And he is going to evaluate their life. And what's interesting is he opens up the books mm -hmm. and the books contain the deeds or the works of people. Now, why would he do that? Because you and I know, at least I know, most, that most people think they're good enough. And that if God would only check me out, if he'd only look yeah. at how good I've been and look yes. at my resume, yeah, I might not have gone to church and I didn't believe in Jesus, but, but I did a lot of good things. Mm -hmm. And God one day will open that book or those books and look at those deeds mm -hmm. and that person will not have a leg to stand on no. because they will recognize that I was not perfect. Yeah. So the great white throne is evaluating the works of people to show and validate God's decision that they did not meet the standard. Yes. Now for the believer, we meet the standard by having our faith in Christ alone. Mm -hmm. It's faith alone in Christ alone. And when that happens, I'm born again. I have received eternal life. Yes. I'm a new person in Christ. I'm then regenerated. And hallelujah, it's a wonderful thing. Amen. Yes. We call that the doctrine of justification. Mm -hmm. However, there's also then the doctrine of sanctification where we begin to grow and mature. It's like a baby. You got to be born and then you learn to crawl and then you learn to walk and run and then go to the Olympics or whatever happens. Yeah, yeah. So for the believer, there is coming a day that we will stand before the Lord and he will evaluate our life, not to determine whether we get to go to heaven, not to determine whether we're born again. That's a done deal. That's a done deal mm -hmm. by faith alone in Christ alone. Yes. But this is to evaluate my life mm -hmm. to see how faithful I have been. This is what we call Bema seat theology. Bema is the word for judgment. This is the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. Paul himself in Romans 14, uh, verse 10, talks about the judgment seat. Mm -hmm. Paul, Paul was concerned about the judgment seat. He said, I beat my body black and blue lest I be disqualified, right? Yes. Paul wasn't yeah. worried about going to hell. Paul was concerned about being faithful to his apostleship mm -hmm. and being faithful to Jesus and that one day the Lord would say, well done, good and faithful servant. So yeah. the Bema seat is for believers and the great white throne is for non-believers. Ah, very, very well explained. Well, you know, we all think we know what we mean by the term eternal life. But you point out that the term can describe both a quantity of time, but also a present quality of life. Could you give us a couple of examples, maybe even from scripture of, of each of those? Yeah, I think if we look at the word, the two words for eternal life, we tend to automatically think, oh, eternal life. I, I got born again at the mm -hmm. Billy Graham crusade, and now I'm born again and I will live forever eternal life. 
Okay, that's true. John 3.16 would seem to mm. indicate that type of thing. Or yes. John, uh, other passages like John 5, we have eternal life. Mm -hmm. That's true. Mm -hmm. But eternal life can also be used in a qualitative sense. So it's not just the, the duration, it's the, it's the style, it's the type of life that I am given. And this can be articulated in passages like Matthew 19, 29, where mm -hmm. Jesus says, and everyone who has left house or, uh, houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. So there's a, there's a future element there, mm -hmm. and it's based upon some things that they have done. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself in the book of Galatians chapter 6 talks about the fact that, you know, one sows to his flesh and he'll reap from the flesh corruption, but one who sows from the Spirit will from the Spirit reap mm -hmm. eternal life. So Paul's talking to believers about if you do this behavior, you reap one thing. If you do this behavior, you reap another. What is that? You can reap eternal life. So that, I think, takes in more the idea of the qualitative, yes, not just yes. the quantity. Yes, and I, I've also often heard folks talk about the fact that, uh, you know, we can expect once we uh, are in front of Jesus Christ, he's looked at our life, he's reviewed our works, from that, of course, there will be loss and reward, but perhaps also assignments of what we will do in eternity. And I always think about that quality of life being how we might serve uh, in eternity. And, and I think it puts a, you know, there's, there's been so much misinformation, uh, even from the time we were children, about, uh, about, you know, sitting on the clouds and earning our wings and playing a harp and, and, and quite frankly, in today's uh, uh, high-tech world, I think there's a lot of young people that are hearing those things and going, well, that doesn't sound too exciting to me. You know, strumming a harp on a cloud doesn't sound exciting <laughs> either no. compared to what the Bible says is going to happen. Yes. I think we have to view, of, we have to have a different cosmology. We have mm. to have to understand that there's coming a new world. There's coming a whole new world, a new heaven, a new earth, a new king. And that king has been given the right to rule. Hebrews 1 talks about that. Right. Colossians 1 talks yes. about that. But in, in Revelation chapter 20, in verse 26, Jesus says, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to the pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. So just as Jesus was tested, found loyal, mm -hmm. and rewarded with a kingdom, so his followers are yes. going to be tested and rewarded with the authority. In fact, Paul talks about this in Romans 8, 16 or 8, 17. He talks about the fact that all of us are heirs of God who have become mm. Christians. Yes, yes. But for those who co-suffer, mm. they can be co-glorified mm. and co-rule with him in his kingdom. That is conditioned upon suffering. That is conditioned upon overcoming. Yeah. That is conditioned upon being found faithful. Mm. Wow, wow. So it really makes, brings home what Paul says about how he presses for the prize. Paul oh, was motivated. Wow. He was. Paul's motivated by two things, and I think every Christian should be. Yes. One, my appreciation mm -hmm. of what he has done for me. Yes. I was going to hell, and now I'm going to heaven. And I wasn't a good guy. You may have been a good girl, but I wasn't <laughs> oh, a good no. guy. And now I'm going to heaven, so I'm happy. I'm motivated. We call it gratitude. 
So first and foremost, my appreciation of what he has done yes. for me. But the second motivational mechanism is one day he will appreciate what I have done for him. Amazing. That's called reward. Mm. That's called the Bema Seat. Now, some people say, oh, well, that's selfish. You're a mercenary. You just want reward. I don't know. Jesus told me to store up treasure in heaven. Jesus told me to live faithfully so he could reward me. Paul said, you're going to reap what you sow, so make sure you reap the right thing. They're telling me to do this. Right. And they're also warning me what happens if you don't, like in 1 John 2, 28, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may not shrink back mm -hmm. in shame mm -hmm. at his coming, but have confidence in his appearance. So I have a choice. Be faithful and loyal yeah. and abide so I don't shrink back in shame. Mm-hmm. Or don't do the right things. And when Jesus comes, he's going to say, Fred, what in the heck are you doing? Yeah. yeah. I don't want that. Mm. I don't want that at all. No, no, none of us do. Uh, well, in 1 Timothy 6, 12, Paul exhorts Timothy to fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Uh, this kind of really falls in line with what we were just talking about, because we know Timothy was a believer. He was, in fact, a pastor. Uh, so, so what would you say that Paul is trying to say to Timothy in regard to taking hold of eternal life? Yeah, Timothy's already a believer. Yes. So Paul's not given an altar call no. to Timothy, his, the guy he's mentoring, right? I mean, Paul's already said in, in 2 Timothy 2.2, he talks about the idea that, Timothy, you're one of the faithful men who I'm oh, teaching, so yes. you'll train other faithful men and train other faithful men. Mm -hmm. So Paul's got this guy already in the camp. What he's saying is, listen, I want you to not become afraid, because perhaps he was timid, mm -hmm. but... Hey, I want you to grab hold of this thing. You're the pastor in Ephesus. You, you need to carry on, man. You need to grab the bowl and roll for it. Yes. In fact, Paul later in chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Timothy, pay attention to yourself and your teaching. By doing this, you will ensure salvation mm -hmm. to yourself and those who hear you. Wait a minute. Timothy was already saved. Yes, Timothy already had eternal life. Yes, but eternal life can be a quality aspect and just as salvation can refer to sanctification as well as justification Paul's using it here in the sanctificational way that's yes. why he's motivating Timothy grow up mature hold on don't yes. give up mm, love it love it he gave just some wonderful advice to Timothy and and uh, it certainly would behoove us to to apply those those words to our lives well, so now we really come to the essential interpretation issue of Romans 2, Dr. Shea, and that is, is justification by faith alone or by works or both? <laughs> and I know that you talked about there's really four major interpretations, or there may be others, but four major ones that we should consider. Uh, as you started out saying, you know, we, we can hold on to a view and say, this is ours, we've, we've studied, we believe this is truth. Uh, there are some well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ who have a different view. Talk a little bit about those four major interpretations and what we can learn from that. Well, as you read earlier uh, about Romans 2, I'm looking at the passage right here. It says, where, where Paul says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteousness of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds." To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. Mm -hmm. So with that passage mm -hmm. and trying to say, well, how does that fit with everything that Paul has said, let alone what Jesus, John, and Peter said, but right. how does it fit with Paul? One view held by a number of people basically says, 
in order to become a Christian, you must obey the law because one day you will be evaluated as to whether you obeyed the law because you are saved by both faith and works. Mm -hmm. Now, many from a Roman Catholic background would say, yes, of course, that's what the church has always taught. And we would say that maybe with some or most of what the Roman Catholic Church taught, it just happens to not square with what the Apostle Paul taught. But it is an option that some would take. And there are also some um, Reformed Protestants who would hold this view as well. Uh, they tend to be a little more liberal, okay. but, but they would feel comfortable saying you're saved by faith and works. The problem with that is Paul says in Galatians 2.16, you're not saved by works. Right. And he says in Ephesians 2.8.9, you're not saved by works, lest any man should boast. So that view doesn't seem to square. You're saved mm -hmm. by faith and works. That doesn't seem to make sense to me. Another view that many evangelical conservative reformed uh, professors and, and people mm -hmm. uh, hold to is what is called the assurance by works view. Okay. In other words, you're saved by faith alone, period. Mm -hmm. But the faith that saves is never alone. Now, this is a, a little uh, ditty that perhaps John Calvin, Martin Luther, or Melanchthon, it's mm -hmm. kind of hard to identify exactly where it came from, but it seems like Calvin used it in his antidote to Trent, the Council of Trent, kind mm -hmm. of re rebuking the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic doctrine. But this is the idea that, okay, you are saved by faith alone. We would all agree with that. However, the kind of faith that saves you and the only kind of faith that saves you is a active faith that results in obedience. So therefore, if there is no obedience, then you never actually were saved. Let me read from Bradley Green in his book, Covenant and Commandment, uh -huh. Works, Obedience, and Faithfulness in the Christian Life. Now, that, that's kind of an interesting title. Well, it is. But he says, quote, Christians, even if they have already been justified by faith apart from works in the past, will ultimately be justified in the future because they are doers of the law. Mm. So even if you were justified by faith in the past, you will be justified by works in the future. And they would use this passage to say, aha, you see, this is the final vindication that we are actually saved. And of course, what do you think this does to the doctrine of assurance? Oh, well, there is you none. don't know <laughs> you don't that know. you're saved until you die. <laughs> oh, and yes. this is what took place with many of the reformers mm -hmm. uh, and the mm -hmm. Puritans that came to our country. Uh, another person who would hold this view would be John Piper. Okay. Now, John mm -hmm. Piper is a very godly man, a yes. very well-educated mm -hmm. man. He is very committed to reform theology. Um, Jonathan Edwards reincarnated, some have called him, because he, he loves Edwards so much. But Piper says this in terms of uh, Romans 2. He says, Or should these verses be taken at face value, so that they mean that the path to heaven is really a path of obedience, and judgment really will accord with works. He says, uh -huh. would it be a contradiction with the power of free and sovereign grace if that gospel were powerful enough that all who truly believed it were radically changed by it and came to heaven on a path of persevering obedience? He says, I think that is true. So in his mind, mm -hmm. the kind of faith that saves 
is the kind of faith that must obey. Not perfection. He's not advocating perfection. Mm -hmm. But there must be a radical transformation of your life. And if you didn't radically change because you're regenerated, if your behavior morally doesn't significantly change, mm -hmm. then you have no right to think you're a Christian mm -hmm. and you have no grounds for assurance of being a Christian. Now, I find this a little bit troublesome because it's very subjective. Plus, it makes man the fruit inspectors That's instead right. of allowing God who only knows our heart. That's right. right. That's right. That's mm -hmm. a, uh, Dr. John MacArthur, who mm -hmm. is a very godly man and a very good yeah. preacher for mm -hmm. many, many years. And I respect him. And I learned he was one of the two most important people in my life growing mm -hmm. up as a believer. Mm -hmm. uh, so much so that I ended up writing my master's thesis at Dallas Seminary on Lordship Salvation is taught by John MacArthur before any of his books were written. How I just I knew him, I'd heard him, I talked yes, with him, I met yes. with him, I interviewed him. And his doctrine of assurance was basically that nobody but the apostles could have complete assurance they were saved. Oh. Because anybody at the by the end of their life might fall away. And if you fell away based on Hebrews 6, that proved you weren't saved. So this view is very problematic to the mm. doctrine of assurance, it, yes. as, as I see it. Yes. The third view is what is called the hypothetical view. Mm -hmm. In other words, this is a view that's saying, okay, you think you're not bad enough to be deserving of going to hell. Let's look at my works and I'll show you, Jesus, I'm good enough. Paul says, okay, let's look at your works. Even if God allowed you in because of your good works, let's look at them. They're not good enough. You think you're good enough? You you moralist, you're not. You think you're good enough, you Jewish person? You're not. You think you're good enough, you you Gentile? You're not. Yeah. All of you are condemned. Remember, Larry Moore used to say, you got to get a person lost mm -hmm. before you get them saved. In fact, Tom Schreiner mm -hmm. uh, says this about the view. He says, probably the dominant interpretation in these verses are hypothetical. So he doesn't hold that view, but he says this is the dominant view. Eternal life would be given if one did good works and kept the law perfectly, but no one does the requisite good works and thus all deserve judgment. The advantage of the interpretation is that it retains the focus of this section, judgment on all who have sinned. So he's saying this is probably the best view, although he doesn't hold it. This is probably the best view that's held by most people that Paul is saying, okay, if you think you're good enough, let's take a look. And you know what? You're not good enough. And you're not. All right. mm -hmm. So just give that one up and let's move on to chapter three so I can tell you about justification <laughs> by faith alone in Christ alone. Okay. Now, the fourth view uh -huh. is what has been typ typically called the reward view. Mm -hmm. And that is Paul is talking about Christians who, if they live godly, they will be rewarded with eternal life but in the eternal life in the qualitative sense, right? right the qualitative right. idea of like Galatians 6, which Paul has used before. Yes. So that's a different way of interpreting this passage. In fact, let me quote uh, Jody Dillo, who's yes. probably been on this show before or hopefully will be oh. in his book, Final Destiny. He says, in regard to these verses in chapter 2, verse 7, he says, the Christian who perseveres in doing good works can obtain the reward of eternal life. That is an enriched experience of that life given to him freely at justification through faith alone. It is true that no unjustified man can obtain rewards in heaven by works, but the regenerate saint can. The unjustified can never earn honor, glory, and peace, but the justified can if he shows persistence in doing good. Mm -hmm. So uh, the reward view 
would take this to say, Paul is talking to believers about how to be rewarded, and that is based upon faithfulness, and it's based upon Psalm 62 that is quoted here, um, who will render to each according to his deeds. So justification by faith is always by faith alone. No deeds, but reward for faithful service is predicated upon faithfulness in doing good work. And, and what's beautiful about that view uh, is, first of all, I agree that we believe that is truth uh, from what we find in the scriptures. Uh, and, but, but the assurance that comes with that, that like you say, we, we are heaven bound if we have believed in Jesus Christ for our salvation. Uh, but that opportunity to live for him now in gratitude for what he has done for us, uh, that he does see it, and he will recognize it because he is gracious, right? It's because he is gracious. He doesn't have to reward us, uh, and yet he chooses to. Another part of his love, his infinite love for us. You know, the, the Bible uses the family and a father and a child mm. as an illustration a lot. Because yes. I'm a dad, I'm a granddad. And the greatest thing I want to see is my son, my daughter, my grandson grow up be mature and honor me as a, as a father, right? Yes. Well, God wants us as his children to, now that we're born again, to grow up, mm -hmm. walk faithfully, honor him, and he wants to say, well done. Well done, yeah. Fred. Well done, Carmen. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Absolutely. And the picture we need to realize, and you brought it up earlier, is the king is at the right hand. Mm. He is seated and he is reordering all of cosmology. And we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth and a new king. And he's going to rule forever and ever and ever. It's mm. going to start with a thousand year rule and it's going to then end up in an eternal rule. And I'm not just sitting on the cloud playing the harp. <laughs> I'm going right. to be serving the king. And whether I get oh. to help serve him in, on Pluto or whatever, not a problem but I want to be found loyal. And that's what drove Paul, and that's why Paul, at the end of his life, in one of his books, 2 Timothy 4, yes. he said, I, I finished the course. I've run the race. Mm -hmm. I kept the faith. Kept that wasn't faith. an automatic for Paul. He realized. Mm -hmm. But he says, I've done it. Game over. I've, I'm done. I'm going to be departing, but I finished the race. And I know, he says, there is a reward mm -hmm. for those who have been faithful looking for his coming. So mm -hmm. the doctrine of rewards is very important. And Romans 2 is problematic because people say, well, wait a minute, justification is by faith, but it seems to be by work. So they mix it and match it to the Roman Catholic Church, or they touch them together and they sometimes cross over a little bit like some in the reform camp. Yeah. We're trying to say, no, 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 you're justified by faith alone, in Christ yes. alone. And now we begin the process of sanctification progressive sanctification where I grow in my mature. And yes. some Christians grow quick, some Christians grow slow, some go up and down, and some, unfortunately, as the Apostle Paul said, will have all of their works burned up, mm. but they will be saved so as through fire. Yes, yes. Once saved, always saved, but that doesn't guarantee that every Christian will always automatically be loyal and faithful to the king. The king will be loyal and faithful to us, That's right. but that doesn't mean we always will be. And there will be a day of reckoning and, and a day of regret for That's those right. who chose not to grow in him. That's right. Oh. Well, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much, Dr. Shea, for being with us today. You bet. 
And thanks to you, our listeners. It's always our prayer that our topics will stir your interest to get into God's Word and to grow in your own knowledge and love for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Also, if you haven't done so, we encourage you to check out the many courses that are offered through Grace School of Theology to expand your biblical knowledge and to deepen your faith. You may have friends and family who really need to hear about God's amazing grace. Sharing these podcasts is a perfect way to start that conversation. This podcast is yours. If you have a topic idea or questions that you would like to have answered, we would love to hear from you. You can send those by email at savinggrace at gsot.edu or tweet us at savinggracecast. So glad you've tuned in today, and remember, the love of Christ can never be earned, and it can never be lost. You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash savinggrace. Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership. 